trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists because there is a battle for your mind. And it's not something I don't want to I don't want to fight for and occupy your mind. I want you to plant the flag and claim it as your own. To that end, I provide you with the best commentaries, the best guests. Case in point, Eric Peters from epautos.com joins me. Eric, how are you today? Well, it's great to be here. I just don't know which thing to not notice in the news. How about you? <laughs> there, there's an awful lot of uh, nothing to see here, citizen. Move along. Move along. Yep. yep. Um, I, I think I want to start with one of the obvious things here. Since the last time you and I talked, uh, there has been some resolution in the Kyle yep. Rittenhouse case. What's your reaction to the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse? Well, I'm, I'm obviously gra- I'm gratified for his sake and for our sakes that uh, political justice didn't obtain in this case. To me, based on the facts, it was open and shut that this kid had every right to defend himself. And this argument that, oh, he went looking for trouble, he shouldn't have put himself there in the first place, amounts to what used to be uh, uh, common 40 or 50 years ago when a rapist would say, she made me do it, she wore short shorts, and I could not stop myself. And, of course, if you said such a thing today, the left would be up in arms about that. Right. But somehow uh, you're subject to being murdered if you go to the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, I, I'm, I knew you would have a good reason take on this. And, you know, I have to admit... For, for a long time, at least for, for the better part of the last year, I've been on the side of, well, you know, probably would have been better to just stay home. But the more I have learned about his case and the more I learned about yeah. his reasoning for being there, the more I find myself going, you know what? If my community were under siege, if it were people that I knew that uh, were facing loss of uh, property or were facing, you know, that kind of threat, I think I would want to stand up too. Yeah, I mean, this this guy, this kid, this 17-year-old kid, uh, acted arguably, in my opinion, heroically, um, putting himself in great danger to protect the lives and property of people in his community, um, and did everything that he could to avoid violence. Uh, clearly, that's I think one of the reasons why they were compelled to exonerate him. You know, he he wasn't out trying to shoot anybody. He was violently attacked as he tried to retreat. By and here's the really interesting tada tading uh, fact about this whole thing by three white guys. Yep. And somehow this whole thing has been framed as white supremacy in action. Uh, a, a white supremacist who went there to shoot black people. Do these these maniacs who are flipping out about this even know that the people that Rittenhouse ended up having to kill were white? Yeah, it's uh, well, and 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 the the way that the media covered it. Um, there, there are so many people who legitimately believe, you know, well, well, I heard that he traveled across state lines and he took an assault rifle because he wanted to kill, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters. Yeah. They, they still believe that narrative, which, which points to a huge disconnect from reality on the part of a good part of the population. Well, I think the, the, the better way to describe it is they want to believe it. Uh, you and I have talked repeatedly about the situational morality and ethics of the people on the left. And their outrage is focused, and it's also uh, refocusable. Uh, you know, uh, and you, it's important to not take anything that they say at face value because it's often quite false. 
Uh, it's not that they're opposed to this sort of thing. They're only opposed to it when it doesn't suit their purpose, and that's the end of it. And I think the sooner people recognize that and understand what they're dealing with, the better. It's, it's a pathology. It's a sickness. It's not, it's not something that can be met with reason, unfortunately. So now our task is to figure out how are we going to be able to deal with this going forward. It's not just the Rittenhouse thing. It's also the, the pathologized hysteria over the vaccines and the masks and all the rest of it. Now, in the next segment, I want to dive into, you know, what's happening uh, in Austria, among other places, Australia, you know, over the vaccine. But before we leave the idea of uh, goings on in Wisconsin, speaking of uh, things, there's nothing to see here, citizen. Talk Mm -hmm. to me about your reaction to the uh, crazy driver plowing through a parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I think what's more interesting is the lack of reaction uh, among the same hysterics in the woke media and the woke community, to use their own word generally. Here you have uh, a case of clearly premeditated, aggressive, murderous violence. A guy deliberately drives his vehicle into a group of people who are um, apparently attending a Christmas parade to try to kill them. And this is not somehow a hate crime. This is somehow not an act of domestic terrorism. Meanwhile, uh, a guy who shows up on uh, January 6th to express some discontent nonviolently about the election results, that guy is a domestic extremist, a domestic terrorist, and potentially somebody who should be put into a hole somewhere for the next several months. It's crazy. For real. And and it's it's not like, you know, hey, we need a, another media circus, but if there was any degree of even-handedness in the reporting, it, it, would, uh, it would make things a little bit better. But there's not. Yeah. Well, what there is that's common to all of this is the deliberate, purposeful fomenting of mass hysteria without consequences. And to get back to Rittenhouse, one of the things that I hope he'll do, and it looks like he is seriously considering doing it, is to sue the president for defamation and to go after all these people uh, who uh, framed this as white supremacy, as a kid who was looking to shoot black people. It's absolutely outrageous. And it would be wonderful if some of these creeps could be held accountable for the harms that they have caused and the anger that they have incited, which has led to all of this chaos around us. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know what people do. People who are starting to wake up and going, okay, where do I turn? Where do I find, you know, good, credible information? Um, they've got mm-hmm. their work cut out for them. Now, thankfully, there are sources, and you have been one of those voices of reason for many years, but um, I really don't know what to tell people other than you've got to be willing to own your own worldview, and you better not be depending on somebody to spoon-feed it to you, or you're going to be misled. Well, but, you know, in a way, I think it's a positive development because while we're all aware, those of us who've been in the media for years, as you and I have been, of the egregious bias of the mainstream media, everybody's aware of it now. And I think the lesson is to to trust absolutely nothing that you can't confirm yourself that is pervaded by these so-called authoritative and trusted sources in the media because they've been proven serially not only to be wrong, but to be maliciously wrong and uh, of guilty of peddling uh, information that they know to be inaccurate and false to further their own agenda. So the more we tune out, the better. The more we tune in to sources that you can trust, uh, that at least are uh, trying to be honest. I think you and I talked about Joe Rogan a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, Rogan, by his own uh, statements about himself, doesn't claim to be uh, a, a Greek scholar. He's just a regular guy who's trying to look at these issues and talk about them on his show. And his honesty alone, uh, as long, along with his capacity to just inform and entertain people, has resulted in this guy with a microphone and a GoPro having a bigger audience than CNN. Right. 
Yeah, clearly the 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 desire, the market is there for people who are looking for truth. Um, I just I just hope people will understand. You really can't outsource your truth detecting to to fact checkers unless unless you want to be at the mercy of somebody else. You've got to you know calibrate your own moral compass and be willing to do the hard work of researching and digging and doing your homework. Yeah, but you know it's empowering in a way. Uh, we're we're complicit in our passivity because we did trust, and I, I use the, the royal we. It doesn't encompass anybody. It's just a generalization, but I think it's fair to say that most of us for a long time, certainly people your, your age and my age, who grew up watching the network news, you know, we kind of just assumed that they weren't malicious and they weren't ill-intended and that they generally did try, at least, to provide uh, an accurate representation of what the news was. And sure, they had a bias, but it wasn't completely hysterically politicized as it is now. These people are ideologues. You watch a guy like Brian Stelter uh, or any of the other people at CNN or MSNBC or even the other networks, and they're just propagandists. They don't even pretend to be objective news people anymore. Everything is an analysis, and their analysis is always in one direction. And by the same token, uh, that's a problem on the right as well. So one of the things that we've got to do, I think, ultimately to cure this society is to is to recover journalism and get back to a point where journalists would provide the news, provide the facts, and refrain from telling you what to think and leave it up to you to assess the facts and make your own determination. No, that's, it's an excellent point. And I, I've heard people say, and I think this is a good rule of thumb, if you are finding judgment, if there are labels that imply some, some degree of judgment in what you're reading, then that's not really journalism. Journalism should be exactly. free of judgment and let you make the decisions as to, to what it all means. Narrative, on the other hand, you know, that's, that's storytelling. Yeah. And it's going to be full of judgment because it's trying to steer you in a particular yeah. direction. Yeah, there used to be a very clear distinction between what was styled the editorial section of the paper and the news section of the paper. And as a journalist who came up in that environment, when you were a reporter, your editor uh, would shy you away from offering up your own opinion in a news piece. Save that for the editorial page. Just provide the facts and uh, give context, and that's it. That's your job as a journalist. Now, if you're an analyst, if you're an editorial writer, and, and clearly you're, you're representing yourself as such, there's nothing wrong with offering your opinion. But it's very important that it be labeled as opinion rather than news. Hear, hear. Okay, hold that thought. We are going to continue our conversation with Eric Peters from epautos.com. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We've got a lot more to talk about. We'll be back just after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, uh, I, I have gone over a number of your articles, but I, I wanted to... I wanted to Talk about the the mandatory vaccinations, and and, and yep. we're, we're seeing this turn into compulsory vaccinations now in yes. a number of areas. Austria and Australia are two of the ones that come to mind. Give me your reaction to uh, world leaders, you know, in various nations doubling down on the idea that this is an idea so good we need to force everybody to be a part of it. Well, obviously, uh, it is uh, an eruption of outright tyranny such as we haven't seen in the West uh, since the 30s and the 40s. But 
Uh, on the other hand, I also think it's, a, it's, in a way, a perverse way, kind of a good sign because of the desperation that it's showing of the people behind this who are resorting to these kinds of tactics, which I think are going to backfire. I think it's a confession that they know they can't convince people because they, the truth is coming out about all this, all this stuff, uh, and people aren't hesitant. They're damn certain they don't want to be injected with these drugs that are being pushed, which we now know are not effective or safe, by the admission of the pharmaceutical cartels, by the admission of Dr. Fauci and all these other people. And by the way, the latest now uh, is that people are just going to have to get jabs every year ongoing for the rest of their lives. And I think lots of people are saying, you know what, that's a bridge too far for me. That's a line in the sand. I'm not crossing it. And uh, now it comes down to which side is going to blink, them or us. And I think at the end of the day, we're going to prevail on this thing. Now, there is some leverage, though, that's being brought to bear in the sense that, and and I know this sounds conspiratorial, but I'm just going to put it out there. It looks like Mm -hmm. uh, the the leaders who are pushing the hardest for uh, compliance with their dictates on vaccines are also Mm -hmm. doing their very best to engineer economic unrest, if not economic collapse, in order to gain our compliance. Well, sure. They want, ideally, to get everybody into a position uh, where they're facing starvation uh, or uh, homelessness if they don't comply. And it just makes the thing all the more despicable for being so, that they would resort to these kinds of tactics. And I think a lot of people are beginning to see through it. Granted, there's still the hysterical, deluded mass of people out there that are all for this. But uh, I think that a counterweight to that uh, is the large number, not perhaps a majority, but nonetheless a critical mass minority that is not going to have it. And I, I hope it doesn't get pushed to the point of physical violence, but the fact is they are doing physical violence to us. We want nothing more than to be let alone. We're not looking to hurt anybody. We're not looking to cause any problems. But if they keep pushing violence on us, and this is violence, treating people like a pariah class, telling people that they will be vaccinated, threat, hint, what are we going to do to you next? Are we going to cart you off to a camp? We're going to take your kids from you. Those are violent acts implicitly. And if it, if it ends up triggering that reaction, then that's on them and not on us. So give me your reaction to, to some of the real trouble spots. I know you had written about, uh, you know, vaccination or death. I didn't realize mm-hmm. Hungary was, was now one of those nations that was, was flexing in this regard. Yeah, well, uh, someone else observed, and I agree with them, that these European countries have uh, a greater tr- tradition of subservience to authority than we in the West. And also, they're disarmed, frankly. And so they're easier to apply these measures to. And it may be some kind of a test to see whether the people in these countries are going to tolerate it and going to put up with it, bend knee and bow. And if they do, then perhaps they're going to try the same thing here. I, I certainly think that this sort of thing establishes a precedent. Um, and that is why it's all the more important that it be pushed back against and not submitted to. We may come to a Tiananmen Square moment. You remember that back, I think, in 1989, oh, yeah. when one man stood in front of a tank and was willing to sacrifice himself if it came down to it to make the point that this is un- intolerable and unacceptable and we can't put up with it. And in that case, of course, the tank driver didn't want to run this guy over. And I think such a moment could happen again, and you're going to see potentially a lot of the enforcers of this saying, you know what, I'm not going to be involved in this. I don't want to be that guy who, who was the guard at Treblinka 
you know, and who herded people into these camps. I'm not, I'm not, I'm washing my hands of this. I'm not going to participate. Now, there was a moment of hope actually out of Austria over the last couple of days where um, I think it was the Brownstone Institute uh, published a whole they, they, a whole compilation of all the different places there was unrest and protest in the street. Mm-hmm. By the way, the U.S. is noticeably uh, lacking, at least as far as the, mm-hmm. the mandates uh, protest. We have other yep. ones that are more woke, but um, the, the police in Austria apparently at this particular protest decided to stand down which I thought, sure. well, there's, a, there's a good sign. They've reached the breaking point. Sure, and that is happening here. We, I think, talked last week about the commander, commanding general of the Oklahoma National Guard, yes. uh, who absolved his troops, the troops under his command in the state, um, from being jabbed. That's significant. That's a really big deal. And there are a number of sheriffs around the com- uh, country who have done essentially the same. And I think you're going to see more of that, because I think that by and large, despite the defamatory coverage of cops and of the military over the past several years, I think most of those people are patriotic, well-intended people, and they're not sadists. They're not looking to torture people. They're not looking to be the next Einsatzgruppen commandos who are herding people off to the, you know, the camps, and they're not going to participate in it. And not only are they not going to participate in it, they may come over to our side. That's what I think. Okay. Well, in the meantime... I, I like to think that uh, there are those of us engaged in building parallel societies that yeah. uh, we don't where we don't have to fight head on, you know, the systems that are trying to rule our lives, but instead can construct uh, detours around them and and avoid, you know, their clutches. Yeah, divor- uh, divorce and decouple. I um, I filed another one of my infamous diaper reports this morning. Uh, in anticipation of Thanksgiving this week, that I meant to be sort of a, 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 a consolation epistle, if you will, to people who are depressed and lonely um, with the holidays coming on because of estrangement from friends and family over everything that's going on. And I make the point that, you know, they may not really be your friends, and even if they're your blood, they may not be your family. And the time has come to uh, stand with people who are your friends, who will stand with you and not against you because of something they heard on the TV. Right. And, and won't turn you out like, a, like Anne Frank, you know, back in the 30s. Uh, and the same goes for your family. Just because somebody's related to you, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily somebody that you want to be around. And uh, seek out the people who uh, aren't going to betray you and who, um, who esteem your friendship as much as you esteem theirs and make them your family. And that would be my message for this, this Thanksgiving. Hear, hear. And somebody pointed this out. I saw this on Twitter. Um, they, they had said one of the, the mixed blessings of what we've seen over the last couple of years is it has been very clearly revealed to us where people stand on the issue of should yep. you be free to choose or not. And, and when people show yep. you what their true colors are, the advice is you need to believe them. Sure. You need to believe them. Exactly right. And uh, this is a winnowing. The people who have stood tall through this and have not betrayed their friends, not shunned their family, uh, they may be fewer in number, but those are the quality people that you want to have in your life. And, you know, if you've been through a divorce, I've been through a divorce, you realize a point comes where you just can't reconcile. You may want to. You may have an image in your mind of the relationship that used to exist, but it's not there any longer. And a time comes when you have to accept that and let it pass and move on with your life. Well, we've and, and we definitely have hit the threshold where all the people who are wishing, well, if things would just go back to normal, I'll get the jab and then everything will go back yeah. to normal. 
it should be pretty clear now to all but the most obstinate. Um, yeah. Normal is gone, or at least what we considered right. normal two years ago. It isn't coming back, so you got to learn to roll with and uh, and adapt to what's happening, and, and above all, avoid getting caught in the undertow of, of totalitarianism. That's right, absolutely. And be of good cheer. And it's easier to be of good cheer when you find like-minded people who who see it as you see it. And stop trying to, to force the round peg in the square hole. Uh, you know, if you've got people who demand that you wear a mask, uh, demand that you, you tell them your vaccination status, those are people, in my opinion, you don't want to be around those people anymore. Here, here. Well, Eric, that is a sound note on which uh, to end our, our conversation today. Tell people where they can find your website. Sure. It's uh, epautos.com. Pretty straightforward. And if you like the kind of chats that we're having now, we have a lot of that online. And, of course, we also have a lot of stuff about uh, what's going on in the world of cars, new cars, also classic cars, motorcycles, and practically anything else a person might be interested in talking about or finding information about. Okay. The comments are pure gold, too. Most places, they're cancer. But on Eric's website, they are pure (laughs) gold. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for that, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to send some love out there to uh, my sponsors. They are the folks who make this possible. They make it possible for me to live the dream of uh, talking daily. <laughs> no, actually, they are the ones who make it possible for me to uh, to get the information out every single day. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, also GovernYourIncome.com and SolarPatriots.com. If you just go to my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com, you will find links, ways to contact each and every one of them. If you, if you don't need what they sell or the, the business or the, or the uh, product or the service that they offer, you could always refer somebody to them or you could just drop them a note and say, hey, Brian was talking about you today and let them know that uh, the message reached your ears. Now, I've resolved to take a break from commenting on the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Unfortunately, (laughs) that break is likely to come um, after I share one or two more uh, commentaries. This is one that I really thought was worthwhile. It's a very insightful essay from a writer by the name of Grayson Quaid. Grayson and I have actually been working to try to get him as a guest on the show. Uh, Our schedules so far just haven't synchronized, but uh, I love the guy's writing. And for everybody who's questioning whether Kyle Rittenhouse should have been in Kenosha on that fateful August night, very few have considered what they may actually have in common with the young man. This is why I think uh, Grayson just absolutely knocks it out of the park. His article is titled, I Could Have Been Kyle Rittenhouse. Now listen to what he says here. He says, when I was 16, I threatened to carry out a school shooting. Okay, not really. I was sitting in math class with my hand up trying to get the teacher's attention. He called on one student and then another and then another. After the fourth or fifth time he failed to take my question, I became frustrated. And I said to myself something along the lines of, oh my gosh, I'm going to start shooting people. Now, Grayson Quay says, I had no plans to harm anyone. It was a dumbass thing to say, even under my breath. 
I was you were 16 once and he says I'm sure you said your your share of dumbass things as well. However, he says the timid farm girl in front of me overheard my comment and reported it to the principal. I was suspended for a few days, had to get a letter from a shrink saying I posed no threat to my fellow students. Soon I was back in school. A year and a half later, I graduated as valedictorian, a goal I pursued in large part out of spite. My classmates and teachers thought I was a monster. Well, I'd show them. Now, he says, in hindsight, I understand why the girl who came so close to ruining my life was afraid. I loved guns, weapons of all kinds, really, and I made no secret of it. I posted Facebook photos of myself brandishing rifles and pistols at the gun club where I'd go shooting with my father. I also accompanied him on frequent trips to the local gun store, where the proprietor and one of his employees became surrogate uncles to me. I bought switchblades and even a telescoping police baton from a flea market. Sometimes I'd walk around with a spring-action karambit in my back pocket, a buck knife in a a belt sheath, and a flat dagger hanging handle down around my neck. I can remember watching TV one night with a loaded 9mm on the coffee table next to me, after my dad had received some vague threats stemming from his involvement in local politics. So he asks, was my classmate's fear an unfair prejudice against a kid with a not terribly unusual hobby, or was it something I had, albeit, unconsciously been cultivating? He says, I didn't fit in very well, and I think part of me liked being seen as dangerous to be dangerous. It was better than the alternative. I could have been Kyle Rittenhouse. He says, Jordan Peterson has made a name for himself by railing against the idea that any active engagement on the part of young men is indistinguishable from an unacceptable power and dominance drive. He urges young men to harness their dangerous side, to embrace the Abrahamic call to adventure, to have a sword and know how to use it, but keep it sheathed unless absolutely necessary. Now, whether he's familiar with Jordan Peterson or not, Kyle Rittenhouse is a member of his target audience and one of his spiritual children. So, in a way, is Gage Grosskreutz. The fashionable condemnation of toxic masculinity leaves men, especially those lacking in self-discipline, with two options. One is to become a good male feminist and be relentlessly mocked and rejected for your trouble. Those who cannot bear total emasculation are allowed to compensate with rants about stomping the white cis-heteropatriarchy and guillotining the bourgeoisie. Now, the other is to fully embrace the toxic side of masculinity. These incels, pickup artists, and Nick Fuentes enthusiasts would rather be reviled than patronized. They seethe with hatred for Globo Homo and blame their failure to form families on the supposed impossibility of finding a woman with a body count under 50. And yet, in practice, these two groups have plenty in common. They've both taken the black pill. Imagine a young man who's given up looking for work. He spends his days smoking pot, playing video games, bullying people online, and jerking off to porn. Oh, and he has an anime profile picture. Is he left-wing or right-wing, Marxist or white nationalist, edgelord atheist or schizoid orthodox? It hardly matters. Now, Grayson Quay says some of the basement dwellers might be satisfied with these semacrola. In his book, The Decadent Society, Ross Dutha describes this phenomenon as a kind of digital age play-acting in which young people dissatisfied with decadence pretend to be fascists and Marxists on the Internet reenacting the 1930s and 1960s with fewer street fights and more memes. 
Fewer street fights. Not none. Call it LARPing if you want, but the braver, more disciplined souls among both camps of the disaffected will invariably, or inevitably rather, put their ideologies into practice. They agree with most of the memes, but the soft petulance of the very online is not for them. They are doers. Even those whose ideology decries their masculinity cannot eradicate from their souls the masculine urge to create or destroy. Now, he says, Kyle Rittenhouse and Gage Grosskreutz are two such young men. This week, Samuel Goldman referred to them as a pair of America's lost boys in a piece that's worth quoting at length. Here's a quote from it. Rittenhouse seems to have combined vague political justifications with a powerful sense that something important was happening and he belonged in the middle of it. The nominal issue, police brutality, was probably less important than the chance to take risks in defense of some principle, however vague or attenuated. Now, that desire doesn't always lead to deadly violence, fortunately, but it's widespread among males who yearn to be strong men, end quote. Now, Grayson Quay says, it's difficult to express this yearning healthily in today's America. There are essentially two ways to do so, which map perfectly onto Jordan Peterson's beloved order chaos spectrum. Choose, like Rittenhouse, to keep the barbarians from the gate, and you're likely to be called a fascist or a white supremacist. Resolve, like Grosskreutz, to overthrow the tyrant, and you'll quickly find your liberationist ideals appropriated by the Fortune 500 and derailed by woke histrionics. Tragic as the events in Kenosha were, they, still, they showed that a certain vital energy still survives in this country. As Senator Josh Hawley said at the National Conservatism Conference, America needs men and the manly virtues. We can afford neither to abandon them entirely nor to allow them to become the exclusive preserve of one faction or the other. And he says, this is why I reject the common argument deployed by Kenosha prosecutor Thomas Binger and innumerable Twitter users that Rittenhouse should have simply stayed home that night. At best, it's a unilateral disarmament. Grosskreutz was also packing heat that night, illegally, I might add, and he came to Kenosha from farther away than Rittenhouse. So to expect right-wingers to huddle indoors while Antifa trashes the city is an absurd double standard. It would divide Americans by ideology the same way students were divided by sex on 1950s college campuses, where the women obeyed a strict curfew while the men ran wild all night. Now, making the argument even-handedly might be even worse. To say that neither Grosskreutz nor Rittenhouse should have been in Kenosha that night is to say that we have no need of young men willing to run into danger in service of their fellow citizens and of a higher cause. But he says that is false. We need more men like that, but they also need us. If we want to avoid a repeat of Kenosha, we have to help these kids channel their energies properly, and we have to build a society in which they have a part to play. Grayson Quay says, I know. I was one of them. It's kind of an interesting take, don't you think? And and it gets me wondering too. I mean, look, I'm I'm not a kid anymore. Uh, my I I was I was never truly high speed, low drag. <laughs> but those uh, those days are are far behind me when when I could do the kind of stuff that uh, that the young kids can do. But I have to wonder, you know, when someone answers that call, sees a need, and steps up and makes themselves available. I just have to wonder if, if that's, that's not a, a noble thing, even if they may be somewhat misguided in some respects. 
All I know is I would rather live in a society where people cared enough to take the risk and get involved than everybody just sat back and sheepishly waited for it to happen or waited for permission to stand up for something. Because I think that's where a majority of people are today, and it ain't helping things if you get my drift. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, just a quick reminder, if you go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the link for lifesavingfood.com, and you will find a treasure trove of options through which you can build or uh, you know augment your own food storage program. This is great stuff. It's ReadyWise food. It's it's packed with a 25-year shelf life if you do your part. You know, don't store it out in the hot sun or in the trunk of your car or whatever, but keep it in a cool, dark place. you got 25 years of shelf life. That's a lot of peace of mind considering the price of food is going up and there are some things that are getting tougher to find thanks to these supply chain breakdowns. But if you've got your stores, you know, set up, you have options. You have the ability to... For instance, say no when someone says, well, do what we say or you're not going to eat. You can just smile and say thank you, but I don't need what you're peddling and wave them away. Oh, and you'll also get a 25% discount if you use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout. That's lifesavingfood.com. Grab that discount, grab some peace of mind, and show some love to my sponsor. So I don't know if you know anybody who has been canceled. I know a few people who've paid a price for making a stand, but it's not often that we get to hear the story of someone who survived cancel culture. Bill Tierney's story is uh, an example of how trauma and injuries can heal, but standing up for what you believe in is eternal. Bill Tierney says, Like many others, you may have decided not to comply with the vaccine mandate or your employer's bearing down on you and you've not decided. So you're thinking about how you would make a living, care for your family, how the government could arbitrarily defy your constitutional rights. He says, well, I know the feeling because I was there over 20 years ago. Except it wasn't over a vaccine, but over a prayer. And it wasn't called being canceled, but being blacklisted. But he says, 20 years later, I'm still here. Perhaps reading my story will give you encouragement for the road ahead. He says, in 1998, I was in the U.S. Army and had been serving as an analyst interrogator with a focus on Iraq. I spoke Arabic fluently and was asked to debrief an Iraqi defector. He was anxious about his status in the U.S. and the fate of his family back home, so with his permission, I prayed for him, not only for his sake, but to calm him down so we could finish the debrief. He had already asked whether I was a Christian and was very vocal about his Christian practice. So there was little risk of alienating him. After the prayer, he calmed down and I collected a significant amount of information. Now, even though my prayer fell under routine rapport building, officers at the intelligence agency in Washington, D.C., where the debrief took place, and my superior at my local command, treated my prayer as a national security threat. My superior ensured my follow, that my follow-on assignment to an agency position was canceled. 
Now, he says, I fought this decision since it set a precedent that Christians can be excluded and discriminated against on the whim of a superior. The Department of Defense Directive on Religious Accommodation requires the command to explain how my prayer adversely affects mission accomplishment, including military readiness, unit cohesion, good order, discipline. So I asked the DOD to explain how this was the case. Instead of applying the directive to my case, they came up with pretexts to punish me for daring to defend myself. Similar to how the DOD is punishing those who now request a religious exemption from taking the vaccine. After the chaplain was ignored, the inspector general waffled and the equal employment opportunity was subverted. I contacted my then U.S. representative, Charles Kennedy. The Army agency changed their story multiple times along the way, ending with a letter from the director of the agency stating that my actions could have resulted in the loss of a valuable intelligence source. Now that my actions enhanced rapport and led to additional information was irrelevant, I was left with the decision to either put my faith or career first. In August of 2000, I separated from the Army with nearly 17 years of service. So, at 39, with a wife and four children, he says, I was on my own. And although I was not on my own entirely, in 1983, he said, I joined the army after being called by God. I was inspired by Psalm 138, verse 2. He, God, has magnified his word above all his name. Now, if the creator of the universe would submit to his own word, to his own laws, then it followed that good government would also submit to a constitution with no arbitrary rulers above the law. Our God-inspired constitutional freedoms and rule of law should be protected and were worth putting my life in harm's way to defend. So, my military service, he says, was my ministry. Staying in after this discrimination would have just made me a mercenary. After some contract work for the U.S. government in Saudi Arabia and Iraq, I established an Arabic-English translation practice, thanks to the training I'd received while in the military. Well, he says, my business is now in its 20th year, and it hasn't been without its battle scars. My wife went through the roller coaster of years of appeals, and the financial uncertainty of starting over was traumatizing. We had to use our home as security to finance business startup costs. Sometimes my wife's family helped us out, and we had the prayers of family and friends. But he says, there was also joy the joy of having stood strong for our Lord when challenged, the joy of setting an example for our children, and the joy of seeing God come through for us one way or another. We just kept going and lived day to day, promise by promise. After 20 years, we looked back over our shoulders and said, Wow, by the grace of God, He brought us through. Now he says, as you face this decision, your life will have different details, but the lack of an income applies to all. And he says, Jehovah has a different economic system from the world's uh, system. Consider Psalm 41. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he shall be blessed upon the earth, and thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make his bed in his sickness. Now, Bill Tierney says, this verse says that if you consider the poor, God will deliver you in time of trouble. Well, we are living in a time of trouble. And he says a verse like this can be difficult to take in. We, we all want everything explained to us. God does not say how he will deliver you. How it happens will be different 
every time. Recently, law enforcement and firefighters in Seattle were terminated and responded by feeding the poor. Now, Bill Tierney reminds us, God is much bigger than the U.S. government. He has his ways of taking care of you. You never know where your support can come from, so don't let pride frustrate God's ways to provide for you. He says, traumas can heal, debts can be repaid, standing up for what you believe in is eternal. Now, I know you probably are thinking, well, that was an interesting story, mildly inspiring perhaps, but has nothing whatsoever to do with me. But I have to ask you, is that really true? Are you sure that you're so removed from those kinds of decisions where you have to decide, will I stand up for what I believe in? Will I pay a price for standing up? Because I think it's happening to more people, even people who, you know, have, have very carefully tried to position themselves to where they wouldn't be faced with such a decision. I'm watching two of my boys right now. And they're facing this, uh, this question over the, the vaccination mandates, and especially as it pertains to employment. One of them is working a, a part-time job that's, that's actually, it's, it's a lot of fun for him. I think it's, it's a pretty cool job, but because it is a job that subcontracts with the federal government, the mandate is there that every single person has to, you know, get the vaccine. And you would think, well, okay, you know, he can always just choose another job, but you wouldn't believe some of the incentives that are being offered for getting the vaccine. Hey, kid, we'll pay you 500 bucks if you go get the shot. That's legit, by the way. They they are really offering him $500. For a 16-year-old, that's that's not chump change. That's, That's a pretty big consideration. My other son, who's nearly 21, is trying to decide, you know, what to, what career path he wants to follow, what trade he wants to learn. Um, I don't think academics are, are where his heart is, so he's he's more of a creator. He's a builder. But he's also having to face the same kind of questions. Do I give in for the sake of, well, this will make it easier for me to find employment, or do I stick to my principles, which in, in this case his principle is, I'm not going to be forced into taking part in a medical procedure that I did not choose to be a part of. I'm sure there's some people thinking, Brian, you just raised stubborn kids and you know, they're just, they're taking after you. I don't know. Maybe it's possible that, uh, that I've had some influence, but I hope it's influence along the lines of, look, you can always find another job. You can always find another line of work, but once you compromise your conscience, That leaves scars that will last for a long, long time. Better off to never go there in the first place and to stand firm. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining us today as we engage in more wrong think and questioning of the official narratives by which we're supposed to see the world around us. 
This isn't about being a contrarian. It's not about uh, you need to do everything I tell you to do. This is about learning how to own your worldview and to think clearly and independently during times of crisis. And that's what this program is is in place for. It's to, to help encourage that kind of uh, independent thought. Whether you agree with me or not is irrelevant. In fact, if I can be so bold, my goal here is to get you so used to thinking clearly and independently for yourself that you outgrow me and you move along. You actually go on and now you're the one who's sharing ideas and information and going out there and and making your waves in the way that you are supposed to. So it's not an insult if you outgrow me. It's actually a compliment. Because I'm not trying to create followers here. I'm, I'm trying to encourage people to step up and be leaders in their own spheres of influence. By the way, I have some great help from terrific sponsors who make this program possible. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. So I want to talk a little bit about the season of gratitude. I know Thanksgiving is approaching and um, been taking a little bit of time to reflect upon how gratitude is the answer to a question that too few are asking. And so I wanted to share with you a few things about uh, how I'm reflecting on, on gratitude in my life. And one of the things that uh, I, I, I want to point out is I know there's a lot of tension this year. What was the meme I saw yesterday? This one made me laugh. It was a Christmas sweater. And the Christmas sweater had embroidered on it. It said, unvaccinated and ready to talk politics. (laughs) I thought, wow, anybody who wears this to the family gathering is going to be the life of the party. But, you know, there's going to be tension. And I've talked to people who've said, you know, they're they're trying to work through um, considerations. You know, family members, well, how many members of your family are fully vaccinated? And if they're not, well, I'm sorry, we really can't be with you this year for Thanksgiving. I mean, I, I'm not trying to ridicule anybody, but it's this is a real consideration that some people are facing. So it's a safe bet that with all the stuff that's going on, this year's family gatherings could be a little bit more strained than in previous years. And in some homes, maybe our best hope for peace is that the turkey coma sets in rather quickly. Now, the sense of division and resentment that settled over our nation is affecting relationships at virtually every level. I mean, we all know individuals who've severed ties with family or friends or even business relations over perceived political differences. So, in interest of not furthering those divides, I would like to step back for a moment and focus instead on some of the things for which I feel genuine gratitude. And, and please understand, I'm not going to flex and tell you, you know, I love my Maserati. I love my 10,000 square foot home and I love my... My hot tub filled with warm champagne. I don't know. It's, I, I'm not trying to flex when I tell you what I'm grateful for. In fact, just consider some of the things that I'm grateful for, things you may think, man, that's weird. I, I wouldn't be grateful for that. But I am thankful for my family. And I'm thankful for the roller coaster ride that comes along with them. You know, the challenges of, of providing a stable home for our kids has been a, a never-ending source of joy as well as alarm for my wife, Becky, and me. And like most people, we 
struggle over deficits of money and time, and we struggle to keep up with the mounting responsibilities of parenting, which is, after all, the only full-time job you really can't quit. I'm thankful for my kids' successes and, and their failures as well. Their struggles, you know, whether it's in schoolwork or in their personal growth, I'm thankful that they have the opportunity to learn as they're moving forward. And I'm also thankful that they know full well that I am absolutely fallible, but they still choose to love me. And they still seek me out for advice and support anyway. In fact, they make me appreciate how much I owe my own parents for their selflessness. I'm also thankful for my friends. And I mean especially my friends who are willing to love me despite our differences of mind. That's because through those differences, these friends have enlarged my understanding by allowing me to see the world through their eyes. And by the way, I'm also thankful for my critics and my detractors. That may seem like an odd thing to be grateful for, but these are the people I can count on to hold my feet to the fire and point out the many areas where I need improvement. Now, my dearest friends, sometimes they understand my feelings are tender. They don't want to hurt my feelings, but... My critics, oh, they will help me. They will help me examine and refine my own thoughts through our discussions, through our interactions, and in turn, this provides a lot of uh, much appreciated color and depth to my worldview. And I'm thankful for the things in my life that require real effort. It's like uh, working out, right? The difficulty that that accompanies your physical conditioning and the labor that's involved in learning. Doesn't it feel good when you step on the scale and you go, hey, that's a lower readout than what I was looking at two weeks ago. And it feels good to own the knowledge that you've worked hard to understand. Now, I'm also thankful for things that remind me to be more humble and to appreciate more fully what I have. The older I get, the more I recognize the power of valuing the people in my life rather than just the material things. In fact, material things matter less And it's probably because I have a pretty recent move still in mind. (laughs) I'm actually kind of turned off to to stuff because I I reached a point last year when uh, it just felt like my stuff owned me. I'm thankful for the incredible scenic beauty of the place that I currently call home. I lived in Idaho for many, many years. I Loved and took for granted, you know, the beautiful, peaceful, agricultural surroundings. But I'm I'm experiencing them through new eyes. And I love to share them with family and friends who come to visit. I'm very thankful for all the magnificent people who have come into my life. And, you know, it's it's not a matter of, you know, just the steady stream of, oh, yes, people coming by to, to, to drop their gifts at my feet and thank me for being a wonderful influence. I am just grateful because I have met people from every conceivable walk of life and and every economic situation possible. And, I mean, everybody from, you know, gifted surgeons to inspiring educators, artists, business owners, humble farmers and ranchers. I've also seen how these people respond during times of difficulty and how they rally around each other and help during times of need. I'm also thankful for family and friends and loved ones who have come and gone. Because in their own way, every one of these people has left a mark on my life and helped to shape me into who I am today. 
So they live on in my heart. They live on in my memories. They remind me the most important things that we accomplish in our life are going to be measured in the lives that we've impacted positively. That was quite a revel- that was quite a revelation to me to to realize this is this is where real success is found. I'm also thankful for the legitimate pain that I felt at the loss of those individuals who have, uh, you know, departed this life. Number one, it affirms how authentic my love for them was, but it also sharpened my desire to be more appreciative of the people around me. Now, those are just a few of the things for which I'm thankful, but did you notice there's, there's not anything among them that requires, on a particular, requires a particular political outcome? Isn't that something? I mean, you think about the people, the, the people who are most miserable around us right now. I'm not saying this to mock them, but it's the people who are hyper-focused on politics and what other people are thinking and why don't they think the way that I do? So I highly recommend a gratitude-based exercise for anybody who wants to sail clear of the emotional doldrums where everybody seems to be stranded these days. Just reflect on how grateful you are for the things that are going on in your life. And, and, and consider this, things don't have to be going perfect in order for you to be grateful. I think that's one of the big misnomers that we buy into. I think about a visit we made a couple of years ago. We were traveling uh, between states and happened to hear that my aunt was in the hospital uh, having some heart problems. So we thought, let's stop in and see her as we're driving through. We stopped to see her and we went there for the, my, my wife and kids and I went there for the purpose of cheering up my aunt. And there she sat in the hospital with all kinds of, you know, monitors and things attached to her. And um, yeah, she wasn't she wasn't doing a whole lot of stuff. But when we finished that visit, all of us came away cheered up because of her. Just because she's a very positive person and she was showing gratitude in circumstances where I think most people would have said she'd be justified to, to feel, you know, sorry for herself. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving. We're going to get to some other uh, fun stuff right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find links to all of the various uh, articles as well as the guests that I have on the program. Here's one that caught my interest today as I was uh, as I was looking around doing my show prep. Um, it's been very curious. I've noticed this not just you know recently, but over the years. Anytime I would bring up identity politics, there were some people who were very um, averse to any mention of this particular form of collectivism. They're quick to deny. Well, no, that's just a myth. Kind of like Antifa is just an idea. CRT, you know, critical race theory, it's not even in the schools. They're so quick to deny that this identitarian brand of politics exists. And yet the same people will insist, well, now, parents have no right to question these kind of teachings, you know, if, if an educator wanted to teach them to your kids. Got an article here from Joanna Williams. This is from spikedonline.com. Of course, we should challenge young people. And the reason is because identitarians are increasingly preoccupied with pushing their ideas on school kids. 
She says head teachers face plenty of challenges. How do you keep schools functioning normally when there's mounting pressure to reintroduce masks and social distancing? How to help children catch up on their learning following the disruption caused by lockdowns and school closures? How to make ends meet after 10 years of budget cuts? But Samantha Price, head of the exclusive Benedin School in Kent and president of the Girls' School Association, is troubled by something else entirely. Her biggest concern is that children are being dismissed as woke. Now, Price says that some parents are deeply unsettled by issues like gender identity. But instead of sympathizing with parents' concerns, she fears that these parents might question or challenge their children. Now, parents might not respond well, for instance, if their daughter were to come home from school claiming that gender identity is on a spectrum. Above all, Price wants school leaders to challenge anyone who dismisses the younger generation as woke. Price argues that adults, instead of criticizing children, need to get with the woke program. To help, she says, schools should host talks with parents on inclusion, diversity, and gender to help them understand the new language of the younger generation. But this misses the point. It's not that critics of woke values on gender, race, or sexuality need help understanding the vocabulary. It's that they fundamentally disagree with the ideas. Price and other woke educators see children as the saviors of a politically backward older generation. But arguing that adults need to shut up and learn from their woke offspring? Well, that's insulting to parents. Parents are assumed to be indifferent to society's problems and and to not know what's best for their own children. Worse, the learn from children mantra calls into question the meaning of adulthood and undermines the relationship between parent and child. And while Price's comments may sound kid-friendly on the surface, putting children's views beyond criticism is patronizing. If we're going to take the next generation seriously, we should not be afraid to subject their beliefs to criticism and challenge. Besides, the idea that we're in a generation war between woke youngsters and selfish right-wing adults is plain wrong. Political views do not fit neatly into age-related boxes. Not all teenagers are woke, while plenty of adults clearly are. And children rarely alight on woke views all by themselves. Kind of like your cat rarely chooses to be vegan by itself. So when it comes to issues like gender identity, children pick up ideas that are promoted in the media by celebrities and influencers, as well as by their parents and their teachers. Now, schools themselves can often be the source of these woke beliefs. Schools are offering ever more explicitly political instruction on a whole range of issues. Some schools use teaching resources developed by campaign groups like Stonewall to teach children about trans issues. Some schools, rather, even permit children to swap gender against their parents' wishes. And this is why Price is wrong in her key claim. Children are not routinely challenged for espousing woke values. On the contrary... They're generally praised and celebrated when they repeat those views back to adults. Price's concerns about calling children woke are revealing. She says, I think that if they are consistently dismissed in this way, then what will happen is they will just give up. In other words, Price is fearful that children may abandon the political views she herself clearly supports. And if they do give up, she says, we probably won't see that level of progress in society from sustainability through to equality that I think we have the opportunity to be able to see and sustain now if we, our generation, handle this effectively. 
So children have become little more than a useful stage army for woke adults to bypass democracy and promote their own agenda. And now this stage army needs to be protected from criticism at all costs. So it's convenient for Price to criticize an older generation that's chosen to close its mind to new ideas. Talk of a generational battle masks the class interests that lie at the heart of so much woke thinking. Woke values serve the elite well. They permit its members to take the moral high ground, to justify their own elevated status. It gives the elites permission to intervene in just about every aspect of other people's lives, whether that is with parenting advice or through workplace diversity training sessions. So it's hardly surprising that a plea to protect woke children should come from the head teacher of a school that charges fees of up to 40,000 pounds a year, more than many people in Britain earn in a year. Privileged children are being trained in the values that best serve their class. So the beauty of woke for leading advocates like Price is that it allows them to promote their politics while denying any involvement in a political project. Woke, Price says, ultimately comes down to something very simple, being kind. Though, as we've seen with the treatment of figures like J.K. Rowling or Kathleen Stock, woke activists can quickly dispense with kindness if it conflicts with their goals. So far from being mocked, activist children are more often flattered as brave and radical. Adult activists are exploiting children by turning them into puppets for their own political views and then calling for them to be shielded whenever these views are criticized. Joanna Williams says children deserve better than to be treated as mere mouthpieces for wokeness. That's a pretty good piece. And again, this is written by someone in the UK, but I think this translates well to what's going on here in America as well. It's it's so funny to me how the, the people who are most vehement... And I, I had one critic in particular who used to follow me around um, when, when I was writing for St. George News. The, uh, this person, I don't care what I had, had published a column on, um, it was just, they were, they were there to say, no, 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 he's wrong. You know, if I, if I were to opine, you know, the sky is blue, they'd be along, the, it's light blue. You know, they just, but they really got bent out of shape. Every time I would mention the the nastiness of identity politics, which I reject not just because it's because oh, I'm a conservative and that's liberal claptrap. It's because it's a form of collectivism. And more often than not, if I'm going to define where the, the rub is between political sides, it's usually the individual versus the collective. Respect the rights of the individual, every individual, and you have freedom. Swallow up the rights of the individual, make them contingent on the approval of the collective. You have tyranny. But this critic always had to pretend, well, Brian's always going on about these identity politics. There is no such thing. And yet such a violent reaction and so much effort, you know, all from a person who believed so strongly in what they believed, they didn't even dare put their own name to their comments. That's how I can tell I'm dealing with a legit person. When you believe something so strongly and you are railing against everything here and there, but you don't even dare sign your name to it, it's kind of hard to take people seriously if they're not willing to, to at least, you know, own their comments. It's not that they're, you know, come on, line up so we can all, you know, dox you and make your life miserable. It's just how much does a person really believe in something if they're not willing to put their name on it? 
I feel like I'm on a little bit of a rant here. All right. Let me step back, grab a cool washcloth from my forehead. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to send a shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, if you are moving to the great state of Utah, and apparently there are a lot of people that are moving to the great state of Utah right now. When you find the home of your dreams, uh, you had better realize the competition is very fierce. There are people waiting in line to snap up those homes as quickly as they can because uh, inventory has been very hard to come by for quite some time. That means prices have gone up. That means, you know, it's simple supply and demand. It also means you don't have time to uh, fiddle-faddle around when it comes to making an offer. You should have your financing all squared away. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you get it done. And again, this is regardless of where you are in the state of Utah. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can stop by their location in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street, or you can call Heather at 435-703-4522. I also have a link in the show notes under my sponsors that will take you directly to her email. So the narrative managers here in America, that would be the mainstream press, has been quite quiet about the rising rage and protests against lockdowns and mandates all around the world. And I have included a link in today's show notes from the Brownstone Institute, which uh, this is, I mean, this is impressive from the standpoint of um, this is the, this is such a collection of, you know, different uh, Twitter posts and videos and pictures that, that clearly show you how these uh, these governments have pressed lockdowns, how they pressed mandates. Some of them are really doubling down. Here's This is the bad news, okay? This is the scariest thing you're going to hear today. Australia literally using its army to, to take people to quarantine camps if they have tested positive for COVID. They and the members of their household or the people who are closest to them, likely infected, are being taken to camps. Now, I know it's remember that was just that's conspiracy theory. That kind of stuff would never happen. It's happening. Austria. Austria, you're actually seeing a very interesting uh, situation where the police are standing down and refusing to uh, enforce what may be one of the most authoritarian uh, approaches to locking down. If you're unvaccinated, basically, you can't be out of your house. You'll be fined crazy stuff and as the deadlines loom deadlines loom for these mandatory vaccines and for more lockdowns that come to many countries in the world people are taking to the streets in protest and in the typical case local media either neither neglects to report on it or they improperly characterize this as its right-wing or anti-vax demonstrations <laughs> they uh, i saw one of the australian leaders going on about if you in any way question what we are doing you are anti-vax I mean, it's like that's the new cuss word, you anti-vaxxer. And it's likely that people who only get their news from mainstream TV or the New York Times probably know very little about these protests. 
So I want you to check out this link if you have the desire where the Brownstone Institute uh, and their friend Aaron Ginn document what the media has neglected, even though this is the largest global protest movement to appear in decades. And keep in mind that the, the footage is from select places just over this last week. There's many more that don't appear here because these protests have been building for more than a year. And these videos indicate the arrival of a turning point. Governments can either continue to press these lockdowns and mandates against all scientific evidence and all good public health, or they can listen to the pains and anger of their own people. I mean, you've got crowds in, let's see, Genoa, Italy, Tbilisi, Georgia, London, England, Vancouver, Canada, and every one of these. I'm not kidding. There's there's video to, to show you what's going on. Melbourne, Australia, a couple of them from there. Northern Ireland, Switzerland. Vienna, Austria, lots from Austria, actually. New Zealand, Budapest, Hungary, New York City, Croatia, Netherlands. Oh, my goodness, one of the worst police beating videos. I mean, this makes Rodney King look like he was in a tickle fight. Was uh, Netherlands police beating a protester. Why? Because he's protesting against COVID policies. The dude was not being violent. He, they just beat him until he stopped moving. It was pretty hard stuff to watch. Anyway, Toronto, Canada, the list goes on. Finland, England, Italy. I'm not a big advocate of, boy, we ought to take this to the streets. But if you scroll through this article, you are going to see that uh, this is a very curious oversight on the part of our media. They're not really talking about these lockdowns. And you have to wonder if that's by design. Well, we don't want to draw attention to it. Otherwise, people will realize there are a lot of people that are getting angry. Well, I have an article here by Thomas Luongo. This was published on LewRockwell.com. Have we finally reached peak Davos? He says, if you look around at the headlines from the past week or so, you will see a startling similarity among them. Coming from all over the world are mandates from one country's government after another, instituting medical apartheid over the COVID-9-11 jab. Now, where these restrictions are the most draconian are within the walls of the European Union. And, of course, that's the region where the Davos crowd's influence is undoubtedly the strongest. But just as a couple of examples of how they are putting the squeeze on the citizens of these nations. Latvia will bar unjabbed legislators from voting. Slovenia made the jab mandatory if you were going to go to the gas station. Austria's new chancellor, who's been on the job for around a month, is now fining and arresting the unjabbed even for leaving their homes. A month ago, this guy was just a minor political hack in in a mostly irrelevant Central European country. Now he's issuing orders like he owns the place. Unfortunately for most of Europe, that actually is the case, not in name, but in practice. And the list goes on and on. Greece, Italy, the Netherlands, just to name a few. Tom Luongo says, to describe this behavior as Orwellian is a kindness. We're closer to Terry Gilliam's nightmarish bureaucracy of Brazil than we are Orwell's 1984. Now, at the same time, you have to squint really hard to find any mention of the massive protests in these same countries against these mandates. But the videos flow freely around the Internet if you're willing to look for them. Protests in Rotterdam turned violent on Friday when two people were shot dead by police during the mayhem. Rome was literally overflowing with people on the streets saying no to this arbitrary and indefensible stratification of society. 
Vienna saw police stand down and join the protesters. In short, says Tom Luongo, I'm seeing a whole lot of hashtag ungovernables out there, and they're growing in number, not falling. He says, I'm pretty much incompetent when it comes to Twitter, but this may be the most trafficked of any tweet of mine. He sent this out the other day. When you lose the police, you've lost your authority to rule. The days of unitary executive governments in Europe are finally, after centuries of tyranny, coming to an end. Why? Well, he's got a video here of Austrian police and army refusing to implement mandate sanctions. They will stand down, and if they stick to their word, then the Austrian government will be in big trouble. That's what's needed. Now, Tom Luongo says to to even contemplate turning an entire country into a patchwork of leper colonies over a nasty cold is indicative of the sickest mind. And to agree with doing so makes you a party to the crimes against humanity. And to pull a paycheck to enforce it is the very definition of evil itself. He says these mandates are coming because of the massive uptick in COVID-9-11 cases all in all of these places where the experimental mRNA gene therapies were deployed en masse. Where the jab is job one, that's where the infection rates are growing exponentially. I realize that may be upsetting to some people, but that squares with the information that, that I'm seeing from multiple sources. The worry over COVID-19 and its destabilizing effects on society have infected even the most sober and thoughtful world leaders on the subject, like Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin, in recent appearances, often looks openly angry and puzzled that the virus was not defeated and that the rate of mutation making public policy is uh, making public policy a difficult maze to, to navigate. In fact, he just recently uh, offered himself up publicly as a guinea pig for the latest booster for the country's successful adenovirus therapy, Sputnik V, to help enhance Russia's ability to fight off the disease. Now, unlike the mRNA therapies, the rate of complications with it are very low, and if anything, seem to at worst offer no added benefit. Tom Luongo says Putin would be better served promoting prophylactics rather than the jab, but there it is. The problem here is the authoritarian mindset. It cannot let go of the idea that some things are truly beyond their control and that some events like these are in God's hands. I wonder if that makes the the blood run cold in the veins of the Davos leaders, right? (laughs) He says, I hope Putin and others like him remember that, that in the coming days and restrain themselves, leaving the jab, any jab, a choice out of respect for life itself. But he asks, have we reached peak Davos? We'll have the answer to that question just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back sharing this article from Thomas Luongo. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. One of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. Tom Luongo asks the question, have we finally reached peak Davos? Now, he's referring to the uh, ruling elite, 
You know, the uh, the COP26 uh, conference that they held in Scotland, remember? You had all these world leaders and, and high financial mucky mucks that all flew there on their Learjets and, you know, came to, uh, to talk about saving the planet from climate change. These are the people pushing the so-called Great Reset, and it's, it's the very elite who, for whatever reason, think that they have the prerogative to run the world. And they have used COVID-19 as a great bit of leverage because of the crisis associated with it to, uh, to pretty much lock the rest of us into a box. And for some reason, the vaccine is a big, big part of, of whatever the, the Davos crowd is trying to accomplish. They really believe everybody's got to have it. Everybody. So have we reached the point where now they're getting diminishing returns? Have we reached peak Davos? Tom Luongo says, I think we have, but that doesn't mean things will get better from here. Only that this is as much pressure as they can bring to bear, and either it will work or it will be clear that it will fail, albeit very messily. So, he says, let's start with the obvious. Places like Austria, Australia, even Italy, will not go along with this. The sizes of the protests grow daily, and as the desperation on both sides grows, any further attempts at control will be met with violence, regrettably. Now, hopefully we see more scenes like the one he linked above that, than uh, what uh, he fears is more likely. But he says, let's back out a bit further and discuss the failure, failure of COP26. He says, this article by Rupert Darwall of RealClearEnergy.com focuses too much on the failure of Boris Johnson's government to land the necessary body blows to gather the international cats to come together on climate change. But the results from Glasgow were pretty obvious. No amount of schmoozing or glad-handing will overcome the enlightened self-interest of nations or people to destroy their energy production, meaning their society. This time it was China and India watering down the language of the COP26 statement to the point of irrelevancy. Because energy production is the basis for civilization itself. The entire climate change scam is nothing more than an attack on civilization. Now, the dissenters at COP26 showed their power within the global community and without their firm commitment to end burning coal to produce a flow of electrons, there was no way everyone else would fall into place. That said, however, these same two countries are happy to go along with population control measures we're seeing in Europe because both governments understand the amount of economic damage done because of COVID-9-11 will bring inevitable social unrest. So they may not be implementing these controls in the service of Davos, per se, only to save their own miserable hides. China's far more advanced on this front than even Europe is. But to see India, as Martin Armstrong talked about recently, using climate change as an excuse to lock down people, he says that's outrageous. It goes to show that, that while Prime Minister Narendra Modi may be Davos-affiliated, he's also smart enough to know that he can pick and choose from their mandates to serve his interests best. He says, this is what I've meant in the past about seeing the fraying of Davos's various factions. But when the members of the cartel think for themselves, eventually the cartel collapses. India would only issue an order like this because, as Armstrong rightly points out, they are worried about civil unrest from economic collapse. But that doesn't mean that Modi will get rid of the coal plants because he knows that stable electricity and heat are the surest ways to minimize that civil unrest. Catch-22 for Davos. A lot of world leaders will begin seeing the same light as we move into 2022. 
their power still rests on the consent of the governed. It's a race against time now for Davos. From the death of COVID-9-11 as a thing to justify our compliance to the various factions seeing their opportunities to take advantage for their own gain, the balance of global power could, could shift quickly. He says China's Evergrande policies are a major source of market instability right now. China is forcing property developers into default, or forcing property owners like Evergrande into default, is enhancing the demand for dollars and yuan, and the best place to pull them from is Europe, whose leadership is on a collision course with hyperinflation and debt default. Now, he says the crashing euro, alongside a strengthening dollar and yuan, means that Europe is getting torn apart at the seams. It means inflation there is going to skyrocket with the next round of CPI numbers, and Christine Lagarde will look even sillier than the last time she tried to sell her BS to the world at the recent ECB policy presser. So the point here he's making is Davos couldn't pull the world together in Glasgow. Now they're going full court press for control where they can over COVID-9-11 jabs. The two issues are inextricably linked. But he says, let's take this one step further. They haven't gotten rid of Powell at the Fed yet. They may not get the Build Back Better bill through this Congress. The rising dollars torpedoing their plans for hyperinflation of energy prices. Even the major oil companies see the writing on the wall. Rutsch, uh, Royal Dutch Shell rather just announced a complete corporate restructuring to move the company's domicile out of the European Union and fully into the U.K., to avoid, the, to avoid the insanity of the EU's ESG requirements. Shell lost a recent home court ruling, or recent court ruling rather, from The Hague, and responded by taking its company out of its homeland and removing any traces of Dutch from its name. The new company will now be called Shell Energy. Shell is playing a waiting game against Davos now. So when a company is politically connected to Shell, makes a move like this, Tom Luongo says, you know the pressure is lifting. He says, I've covered them for years. They've always been ahead of the political curve, knowing where things were headed and where to pull out of. So while Shell may make noise publicly about phasing out fossil fuels and all that rot to satisfy the ESG jackals, their actions were to extend the life of its primary business by avoiding the pass-a-law-make-reality chaos of the unelected EUSSR commissars. He says, this is why I'm now considering peak Davos as potentially real. And he says, if I'm right, this means their power is at its maximum, yet they still have tremendous inertia on their side. Both China and Russia are taking full advantage of the chaos they're creating. But he says, what's clear to me now is that this is what the worst case scenario looks like. Chaos around the globe with a patchwork of mandates being implemented amidst massive resistance and enforced economic ruin driving world leaders to the brink of war. Wow. I mean, that's pretty sobering. And he says, don't think for a second, both Xi and Putin don't understand this dynamic. At the same time, however, Davos has failed to overcome the enlightened self-interest of the developing powers they thought they could co-opt politically through the application of funny money. Remember George Soros recently calling Xi the devil himself? You think he's got money and agents in China he can't extract from there? Tom Luongo says, that's why I think the key here in the U.S. will be the next few weeks leading up to the December 3rd drop-dead date for the debt ceiling. 
Pelosi will try one last time to use it to blackmail cocaine Mitch to cave and pass the Build Back Better bill designed to destroy the U.S.'s economic future. There seems to be just enough internal resistance within the U.S. political scene to keep this from happening. And McConnell has to know his days are numbered regardless. The bond markets are beginning to smell a rat. Now, if Pelosi fails and has to raise it on her own without the Build Back Better bill signed, then the Democratic Party collapses completely in 2022 as all of their leverage over the Republicans and the Fed vanishes as we enter the primary season for the midterm elections. We will see defections within Congress as Pelosi's speakership fails. If she succeeds, we then we push toward a future with a compromised U.S. facing a two-front war with Russia and China, whom both feel the EUSSR is a party to and punish and will punish accordingly. He says, if that isn't a signal of peak Davos, I don't know what would be. So there's the 30,000-foot view of what's going on geopolitically. And again, this is, this is one person's view, but Tom Luongo has some pretty solid insights here. And everything that he's talked about, if you click on the article, you will find it's very well sourced. He can back up what he's saying. This isn't him just, you know, pulling ideas out of thin air. So it brings us back to the question of the day. What can you do? What can I do? from our modest position as just, you know, citizens of the greatest nation on earth. Politically, there's not a lot that we can do, right? You can use your influence close to home, and I would encourage you, use it where it counts the most. But more importantly, this is the time to redouble our efforts of becoming absolutely solid and steady people of character. That's going to differ from person to person. You know what you need to work on. I know what I need to work on. But don't discount the ability to shift things in the right direction simply by being a good person. And just look at the gravitational pull that that creates. This is The Brian Hyde Show.